Thank you for listening to another episode of Australia's premier wine podcast, The Vincast. I'd like to take this opportunity to recommend another fantastic Melbourne-based podcast, uh, this time focused on food. Uh, the podcast is called Ingredipedia, and it's hosted by Emily Naismith and Ben Birchall, who are both uh, food writers and, uh, and journalists. Uh, Ingredipedia focuses on uh, each episode being about a specific ingredient, uh, and then Emily and Ben will actually uh, have a, a bit of a smackdown. They compete with each other who can bring the most interesting uh, anecdotes uh, and facts about that ingredient. Uh, and then uh, the listeners have the opportunity to vote who they thought had the most interesting fact. Some of the uh, episodes have been about ingredients like um, tomatoes uh, and avocados, uh, and it's a really fun, relaxed, uh, and enjoyable listen. So I do re- recommend checking it out at ingredipedia.com.au. Search it out on iTunes. Uh, and if you do enjoy it, leave them a rating and a review. And make sure you let them know that uh, I recommended it to you. So uh, thanks, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Episode 106 of the Vincast, I chat with wine communicator and wine educator Tyson Stelzer. We talk about his affinity with the screw cap closure, his love of the great Australian blend Cabernet Sauvignon Shiraz, and his recent rise to prominence in the world as a champagne expert. there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I am supremely excited at the moment uh, for two reasons in particular. Um, the first reason is that uh, this weekend I am really, really uh, thrilled to be bottling the first wine I've ever made uh, for myself, my Heathcote Sangiovese, uh, which if you haven't been kind of following me on social media or on my YouTube channel, uh, Intrepid Wine, uh, I um, I bought a ton of Sangiovese from the Heathcote region uh, and um, played around with it a little bit and I'm um, really excited to be bottling the wine this Sunday. So uh, if you're listening to this, uh, please do keep an eye on uh, social media um, on Sunday. Uh, hopefully I'll be sharing some, uh, some pictures and maybe even some videos, possibly even Facebook Live. Uh, and the second reason that I'm really excited, guys, is because I have... Uh, possibly one of the most incredible guests I've ever had on the podcast, Tyson Stelzer. Uh, Tyson, if uh, you haven't heard of him, is one of the foremost wine communicators in Australia, has written uh, many, many books, uh, regularly contributes articles uh, to publications around the world, uh, is uh, contributed to the Wine Companion every year, uh, and is also considered to be uh, one of the foremost, if not the foremost authority on champagne in Australia. So uh, I had a chat with him via Skype. Um, it was really fascinating to hear more about his background uh, and I hope you um, enjoy the episode. Stick around to the end so you can find out how to get in touch with us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Tyson, thank you very much for joining me uh, via Skype this evening, uh, all the way from Queensland. Uh, and I believe you've had a, a reasonably busy uh, schedule of late. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've come back from a champagne tour that I hosted for the first time. Hosted two sellout events in Hong Kong and just this last week, three events in Perth, one in Brisbane, one in Sydney, and off to Singapore next week to scope out some events for next year. So this is peak event season and very exciting opportunities around the world of wine. Are these predominantly champagne-related events? Yeah, a bit of everything, actually. Um, I'm doing a lot around champagne internationally, but domestically a lot of corporate events in all kinds of wine styles. Did one in Sydney where we're featuring everything from Grange and Hill of Grace to Burgundy and Bordeaux. And I do a lot around New Zealand Pinot, the Great Australian Red, Cabernet Shiraz blends. So I get um, the privilege of experiencing the, the diversity of the wine world. Fantastic. Well, um, Tyson, I usually start every episode of my podcast by asking my guest if they can remember if there was a uh, a particular incident that mm. might have um, led them on the path, started them on the path to, uh, you know, wine love, or, or was yes. it a more gradual thing? There, there was an incident for me. It was the Barossa Valley. It was 1998, and the great 96 vintage was in the cellars. And I had really not experienced wine beyond a case of Jacob's Creek that I'd shoved under my bed and, and drunk slowly over the years preceding. But by visiting the Barossa with that wonderful vintage just starting to be released, and it wasn't just the wines. It was as much the, the vineyards and the stories of the people and the places and the, the way in which Australian wine can take a rural family battling with the the elements into global stardom with these wonderfully world famous wines that um, were wowing the world in the 90s as they are today and I was completely captivated by that as a young 20 something and um, really just going from university into my career as a teacher and suddenly fell in love with the world of wine. So um, what were you in the Barossa Valley at, at that time? I was. We visited um, my wife's aunt and uncle at the time and um, spent a couple of weeks traveling and visiting cellar doors and just experiencing the wine world like I'd never seen it before. Yeah, well, I mean, Barossa Valley is uh, such a fantastic place for a, a tourist uh, yes. you know, wanting to learn about wine. Uh, mm. For someone who is relatively new to wine, uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to, to learn a lot. Uh, you know, I think mm. probably the only other regions at the time that would have come close would have been the Hunter Valley, um, maybe McLaren Vale, Yarra Valley out of mm. Melbourne. But there's, you know, thankfully it's a, it's quite different now. So there's a lot of opportunities for uh, people to head out of the city and visit some wineries to learn. Um, I mean, it's it still, you still had some interest in wine enough that you stashed a, a case of Jacob's Creek under the bed. Yes. I did. That's right. But really only just out of interest and just something that cost me all the $5 a bottle, but which um, even after a couple of years improved. And way back then, even the Cabernet Shiraz blend was something that captivated me and has led to all sorts of opportunities in championing that blend around the world ever since. Mm. Uh, so where did you grow up um, originally? I was, I, I'm a Tasmanian. I was born in Hobart. I only spent a few years there. I was a young child and then grew up in Adelaide and had regular trips to the Adelaide Hills and the Barossa Valley as a kid. Nothing to do with wine at the time, but um, they felt very much at home in both of those regions. And ever since that time, since the age of 10, I've lived in Queensland and had the chance to um, discover perhaps more a wine drinking culture than wine making culture from that point of view in Queensland. From a purely you know consumer perspective, I guess you know there's not really much wine coming out of uh, that area. 
No, there's not. I mean, there's plenty of wine that's made in Queensland, but very little of it goes to export or to state. And most of my writing tends to be um, national or international. So it means sure. that I'm not covering Queensland wine as well as some others in this state are. And that's it's good that they're covering that, but it's not really my um, realm of, of influence at the moment. Mm. And were your parents uh, interested in wine? Do they drink much wine at home? Not really. I mean, they always offered us a glass of something out of the cask from the fridge with dinner. And as um, teenagers, we were never really interested. Um, but it wasn't really from them that I gained my wine interest. That that came very much after I'd left home, um, although they've followed it avidly since and <laughs> re- reminded me that our family ties in our ancestry very much go back to the Barossa Valley and five generations of the Stelzers is there. And Stelzer Road at the back of Tanunda was um, where those families settled after they first lived in Bethany. So there is a family history there, if not perhaps directly from my mum and dad. Would I be correct in guessing that Stelzer is a German name? It is, yes. Um, five generations back, emigrated across as, as many did and settled in the Barossa and other parts of South Australia at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, of course, you, know you, dr- you drive around the Barossa and you see plenty of German names you know, mm. between wine producers and yes. towns and obviously this is a big German festival. So, you know, it's a, it's yes. a great community around the, the, uh, the German ancestry. Um, it really is, yeah. And the contrast with the English settlement there as well, if, if the German was perhaps more in the valley than the English settlement in the Eden Valley, particularly Angerston mm. and um, the wonderful um, history and heritage there of the English families coming out in the 1800s as well. Yeah. So you studied at university to become a teacher? I did. I studied, uh, I did an arts degree in maths and biblical studies. I did a science degree in physics. I taught in high schools for 10 years. I was head of science and loved it, really enjoyed the opportunity to be in the, the lives of young people at a very vulnerable and influential age and developed really good relationships with the staff, a big, big department I was looking after and good relationships with the kids. And, um, that kind of established the skills in education and teaching that I very much use now as a wine communicator. And, yeah, and communication as well. Um, yes. As far as the um, the community, uh, the, t- the teaching community, did mm. you find um, that other teachers and, and friends enjoyed drinking wine and you liked, you started to get interested in, in, in discussing wine with, uh, with your colleagues and friends? I was, I was uh, very popular when I became um, <laughs> a wine because I was writing about wine um, for um, the last five years of my teaching career and that led to all sorts of opportunities and hosting charity dinners at the school and bringing in winemakers and the teachers loved it because every Friday afternoon, of course, is happy hour in the school and they'd bring out wines and to have the opportunity to, to make something a bit more special out of that through my experience and my connections was something that um, really benefited the whole community, not just from a fundraising point of view but from um, a relationship and a, a community. We'd, we'd do dinners on Friday nights and we'd bring, you know, 50 parents in and there'd be 50 teachers and we'd all sit around and talk about wine. It was just a wonderful way of celebrating relationship and community and food and wine at the same time. Absolutely. So how did how did your sort of wine career first get started? You, you, mm. you said that you were writing for about five years whilst you were still working as a teacher. How did you start doing that? I started writing online of all places back in an era in the late 90s when there was no such thing as blogs online, but there were discussion forums. So I got into these discussion forums because I figured that was an easy way to learn about wine fairly quickly. And there's no better way to learn how to write than to have instant scathing or praising feedback right there um, 
the moment you've written something, um, people tend to not hold back on this discussion board. So it proved to be a good um, refining ground for my writing, I guess. And um, the, the first thing that encouraged me to take that a little bit further was some projects I was doing at home, building cellars out of old refrigerators and trying to create climate-controlled wine storage on a budget back before the, you know, Vintex and kitchen and cabinets were readily available or affordable. And, and, and very, very uh, important in Queensland. <laughs> oh, particularly in Queensland. But I found I had inquiries from all over Australia and all over the world with oh, people wow. wanting to do the same. And so um, I got sick of answering all the emails in the end and decided I should just create a bit of a website to explain what I've done, which I did. And then thought, well, it really needs to be extended and made into a book. So I sent a letter to James Halliday and said, look, love your selling book. Um, these are some ideas. Why don't you add a chapter to your book? It wasn't the right thing for him at the time. So I then thought, well, maybe there's space for me to do this. So I then sent a draft manuscript to a heap of publishers and the inevitable response is, unless you're a celebrity or have an established publishing record, they're not interested. So I then thought, well, how hard can self-publishing be? So that was the first of what became more than more than a dozen self-published wine books in the end. Um, and even now that I'm working with a big publisher, there are still projects that I've got in the pipeline which which may prove to be self-published. Right. How did how did, getting on those sort of message boards and forums? Because I kind mm-hmm. of dabbled on that. Um, you know, 14, 15 years ago when I yes. first started working in the wine industry, how, mm. did, how did the discussion or how did your writing kind of develop from there? Would you go on and you'd write a, um, a, 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 a tasting note for a wine or did you sort of start a discussion forum and put together mm. some, form, some short article about a region or a producer? How, mm. how did it kind of work back then? Cause it's pretty different yes. now. It was all of the above, um, and you could get on a, a forum and just start a post on any topic you wanted. So ask a question, pose an idea, publish the notes of a tasting. I met with some um, friends in Brisbane um, every Monday night for some years, tasting together and use that as a springboard to publish things on the forums. And then it, it really got quite um, <laughs> quite controversial when um, I started writing about screw caps, which was probably the big topic that really gave me an opportunity to launch internationally because as a wine consumer, I was interested in whether screw caps were better for red wine aging than corks and did a tremendous amount of research into that and ended up publishing three books on it in the end. But it was just at the time when everybody else was starting to ask the same questions. And so I suddenly found that I was the um, guest speaker at international technical conferences in South Africa, Tokyo, New Zealand, Australia, London, and all of a sudden, this Gold Coast High School science master was the international expert on a fairly controversial and topical point in the wine world. But what that did in terms of discussion forums, to answer your question, was that the E. Robert Parker Forum, which at the time was the big discussion forum around wine in the US, mm. invited a panel of experts to come on to talk about this whole closures debate. I think it was 2003 or 2004 or thereabouts. Anyway, um, so they asked me to come on board as the screw caps representative, which I said, well, I'm not a representative as such. I'm an independent critic, but I'm happy to comment on screw caps. Um, and so you can imagine with the ingrained long history of corks, 
that for someone to come forward espousing the virtues of a modern closure was not something that went down particularly well. So there are all kinds of personal attacks and everything that went on in those discussion boards. I found it quite entertaining, actually, the um, the lengths to which some people would go to try to make their point and, and get a bit off topic by making it personal. But that in itself was a great forging ground for building a tough skin as a, a critic and a commentator because, again, it was instant feedback that you never get from producing television or writing books or magazine articles, but um, it, it gave me a very clear picture very quickly of the kind of different opinions that exist in the wine world and how I can write in such a way as to um, not dodge them but um, embrace them and certainly be conscious of the things that I need to be particularly attentive to. Yeah, absolutely. So when you set up your own website, was it mm. purely just to um, talk about and advertise um, the, you, you, what, the, what you were doing with, um, you know, repurposing fridges to make them into yeah. sellers? Did yeah. you, you also use the website to, you know, write other stuff, you know, mm. communicate about, you know, about wine in general? Not really back then. My first website was just about rebuilding sellers and my second website was really just an online brochure for my selling book, which was a longer version of the first website. And then from there, I, I didn't really ever get into blogs as such. And even in recent years with TysonStelzer.com, I don't call it a blog. It's It does have articles and it does have um, unique articles that I've published only on the site and also um, repeats of articles that are published in other publications or, or links to them and does have wine reviews. But um, I guess I've tried to purposely, because I've, I've begun my writing career as um, largely print media rather than online, I thought, well, there are other people doing the blog thing out there quite well. I'll try to separate what I'm doing stylistically as being a bit different to that. Right. Okay. And and what format was the, the the first book you self-published? It was about cellaring, and it, yes. was it um, short form or was it you know quite in depth? How did you go about researching for that book? Quite small. I've got a copy here. It's a bit of a blast from the past. Daggy old photograph on the back of it. It's all of fifty-eight pages. Um, it's A five in size, black and white, with lots of diagrams and all those sorts of geeky things to make sure that you get it technically right in the cellar. Um, and it started off with um, a summary of a visit that I made to France back in 2000 and 2001 and went through all these amazing old cellars and basically told the story of what you need to achieve in a cellar by recounting some of these remarkable cellars, some of which go back um, a millennium mm. in terms of the age of the, of the cellars themselves. Um, and so a bit of an evocative introduction and then into the technicalities then of making sellers at home yourself without necessarily spending a small fortune on it. Mm. So at a certain point, you were able to um, move away from teaching and devote yourself completely to one, one communication? Um, I'd started, I published my first book in 2002 and in two, at the end of 2006, I retired from teaching. So it's been 10 years since that time. Um, I was kind of working full-time as, well, I was working full-time as a teacher between 2002 and 2006, and I was doing at least full-time hours in wine at the same time, after hours, weekends, holidays, and so forth. Um, and then after 2006, running your own business, trying to establish yourself in a niche field, I was pretty much working double-time and, and have ever since and loving it more and more by the day. Mm, absolutely. 
How did um, you, what was the sort of the next stage in your career um, beyond um, the, 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 the book or, and, and other writing, other engagements uh, and the, the sort of the, the wine fridge sellers? So after I was um, publishing those first books, my focus then um, moved very much to the whole question of screw caps, and that led to international presenting opportunities, which then led me to meet Matthew Jukes, who is, of course, a um, well-known and well-established critic in the UK. We and also met a his- former guest of this podcast. <laughs> Oh, good. Excellent. Oh, you know, Jixi. So um, we met in New Zealand of all places. I presented over there the closing presentation of the inaugural screw caps seminar. He approached me immediately afterwards. Sorry, um, was that was that pun intended, the closing? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Too much closure going on there. Um, he approached me immediately afterwards and said, um, that was amazing. I'd love to work with you. And I then went to the UK a year later and researched what he was doing, found his little book called The Wine Guide. Um, or the wine list, I think it was back then, and um, discovered the most remarkable food and wine matching detail that I'd ever seen in my life and said, this is the book we need for Australia. So that led to three years of working together um, on three different editions of, of that book. We called it Taste, Food and Wine and published that in Australia and it was a, a bestseller for that time. And at the same time, we launched a wine competition called The Great Australian Red, which we judged together for the years that we were producing the book and have every year since. We've just judged the 11th um, judging of that competition, and it's all about the the classic definitive Australian style of Cabernet Shiraz as a blend, which often gets lost from traditional shows, which have big Shiraz classes and big Cabernet classes and a few Cabernet Shiraz blends on the side. So we thought, well, let's bring them all together. It's only ever about 100 or 110 entries a year, everything from the, the top wines of Penfolds right through to the great value, you know, Blake's Breeze, Benuta and Yolamba the Scribbler. Um, and in fact, this year, the wine that won was a blend from Tatachilla that you can pick up for less than $10. So that was our top wine under $25. And it's great to see a, a wine style that's able to capture not only the top end of the market, but also do some of the best value at the bottom end as well. I kind of think that um, Cabernet Shiraz is a victim, um, like so many wines around the world, of the you know much bigger interest in varietal wines. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like visiting Alsace many years ago, mm. um, they talked about like I go going to Marcel Dice for example. They talked about yep. like we make crew wines, and the varieties yep. are always going to be different. It just depends on what the mm. vintage gives us. Um, but then, you know, many years ago, merchants asked, well, we want Riesling, we want Pinot Gris, yeah. rather than, you know, what they traditionally made. I think that that, you know, is uh, absolutely a, a, a product of people asking for, I just want Cabernet Sauvignon, I want Shiraz. Yeah. Um, what is it do you think so special about Australian Cabernet Shiraz? I mean, I suppose you don't really find it much anywhere else in the world. <laughs> It's true. And what you're saying is correct. There's such a focus these days on terroir and people equate that to single vineyard as being superior to to bigger blends and certainly single varietal as being superior to blends of more than one varietal. But when you take a broader picture and say, well, actually, two of the most famous and most celebrated historical wines in the world, Bordeaux and Champagne, are definitively and fundamentally blends and every bit as expressive of terroir as anywhere else. Um, And this is a a big debate across the Champagne world regarding particularly the rise of growers and single crew and single vineyard wines as opposed to larger house negotiable blends. And, of course, that applies equally to Australia where 
single vineyard Shiraz and Cabernet are, of course, very popular, but blending the two together are sometimes regarded as leftover wines. So that's a shame and something that we've really wanted to try to champion in our own tastings and promotions and with the competition because it is possible to use Shiraz to fill out the gaps in Cabernet in exactly the same way that Merlot and other varieties have done for centuries in Bordeaux. And in Australia, Merlot is not particularly successful for our climate and our terroir, but Shiraz most certainly is. As you can say, there's probably no variety better suited to Australia than Shiraz. I've so also heard by- theories that the, the, the Merlot clones that were brought to Australia weren't particularly strong. Yeah, correct. And that's something that winemakers are working hard to address in terms of putting new clones in the ground. But it will be some years before we really know for sure, sure whether or not that's the whole problem. I suspect it is a large amount of the problem, as you say. But that that aside, there's no question that when you look back at the history of Shiraz as a blending partner for Cabernet, right back to the early Penfolds wines and even back a century before them to the late 1800s, there's something special about the way those two varieties work together in Australia that has not yet been replicated by any other country, which gives us a unique selling point in an increasingly competitive and strategic wine world. And it is quite incredible the way that the Australian wine industry has evolved uh, in mm. you know a pretty short amount of time. When you look back um, only about 30, 40 years ago, yes. varieties weren't even on labels. You know, they were using yeah. French terms yeah. yes. or, or they were using you know basic terms like dry red. You know, look at some, mm. someone like Yarra Yering in the Yarra Valley, you know, yep. dry red number one, dry red number two. The yes. variety wasn't as relevant, but mm. now I think people are more interested in to find, to find what the great varieties are. There is... Uh, I think, and I, I think it's a good thing that people are a lot more familiar with grape varieties. But mm-hmm. it's possibly at the slight um, detriment of the opportunity to enjoy wines that are a blend of varieties, yep. and not necessarily one variety is better than another mm-hmm. one. Mm. It's absolutely true, and it's good to see that some great winemakers had this conversation with Tom Carson, of course, winemaker for Yabby Lake and one of Australia's most prolific wine show chairman at the moment. And he was saying, yeah, everyone just chastises the blend when, in fact, some of the best wines that we can make are, in fact, blends. Mm. So um, beyond um, working with Matthew um, mm. and, and, and with the, the show and the various books, how did mm. you um, get other experiences? I'm um, assuming you would have had plenty of opportunities to travel around Australia mm. and, and New Zealand and Europe. Um, what, what, what were some of the, the great experiences in that it's sort of fairly, still fairly developmental period of your wine career? I've kind of decided in the late 1990s that wine communication was something that I was keen to pursue and I knew from the outset that to really do that effectively I needed to have proper grounding in the benchmarks of the wine world. So a couple of years before I started writing my wife and I spent six weeks in Europe and I went through all of the major regions of France and visited top producers and just tried to get a feel for the benchmark wine styles, everything from Rousseau in Burgundy to all the first growths in Bordeaux and many of the great houses in Champagne, through the Rhone, through the Loire, through the Mosul. And to do that, I figured I needed to be grounded in French as well. So we did two years of French language course before we left for that trip, just so that we had enough to be able to communicate with the wine growers and get by my French still isn't fantastic, but it's it's getting better by the year. Um, so I, I really wanted to be grounded in 
global benchmarks more than in sitting through formal qualifications in wine. And ever since I've done Wine and Spirit Trust education courses and I've done Len Evans um, tutorial and I've done lots of other um, more informal wine training, but I still find that the best education for me, apart from prolifically reading lots of books, of course, is just being on the ground, experiencing vintage in regions. Um, I've worked vintage in a few places and constantly listening to winemakers and visiting the wineries, getting a feel for what's actually going on. And I've found that to be more valuable as a communicator and a wine expert perhaps than um, than other means of educating my palate and my knowledge. Hmm. So what have been some of the more profound experiences that you've had visiting wine producers around the world? Some of the benchmarks of Europe set a standard that um, was so far above my experience in Australia. To go through and taste the 2000 vintage of Chateau Latour in Barrel, to taste the 2000 Rousseaus from Barrel, my very first visit in Burgundy, my very first proper taste of Grand Cru Burgundy full stop was at Rousseau. And to, to look at those wines in Barrel from a great vintage was just world changing. Um, and then to come back and judge Australian wine with that sort of benchmark context um, was, to me, the philosophy of what the Lane Evans tutorial is all about and something that I was able to get a little bit of <laughs> fairly limited and only brief, but um, nonetheless, it's it's set benchmarks for me that I've been able to use ever since. And then to, to do that in Australia as well and the privilege of sitting down with Peter Gago on numerous occasions and tasting through current vintages of Penfolds and looking back at the history of the way those wines have developed in, for instance, the rewards of patients tasting and contributing notes to that wonderful publications that, that Penfolds reproduces every few years and to, to look back at every special bin that they've produced since the 50s and to go back into the depth of five decades of bin 389 and to see the way in which wine evolution has changed over time, the way in which those wines have improved in the cellar, the way in which terroir and wine styles and winemaker influence affects them are profound experiences and great privileges that I, I will never take for granted. Mm, absolutely. So uh, up to this point, you um, were particularly well known for um, being yeah, speaking about um, screw cap closures yes. <laughs> and also, you know, the, the great Australian red blend Cabernet yep. Shiraz. At, at what point did you start to get more connected with champagne and mm. sparkling wines in particular? Yep. It's funny, I was the cellaring guy for years and then I was the screw caps guy for years and did all I could to shake those. Um, thankfully, both were they, they both did their time and once the whole discussion around screw caps subsided, it meant that I could focus on other things because ultimately it's more exciting to talk about wine than it is about closures. So I was well, quite I happy the, to make the, the closure. Sorry to tune the closure discussion yeah. has come back on in, in has, a big way. It? Yeah. It's yeah. really interesting. Mm. Um, you know, I'm I'm really excited to be to be about to be bottling my first wine that I made yes. uh, this year, um, nice. and I I made the decision to to use Diam closures, and yep. uh, you know I'm, I'm seeing wines down here in Melbourne that are being bottled, uh, you know, under a crown seal, like red wines. Yep. Yep. Um, it, it's it's very interesting that you know it's mm. it's kind of bringing up that discussion about closures a lot more. It is, and globally, while while we kind of reached conclusion in Australia ten years ago, globally there's still very much there's a lot of uncertainty around alternative closures. So I think it will take a generation before there's there's any kind of unified direction toward particular closure types globally. Everyone's still trying and experimenting with different things, and that's a good thing too. It's good to keep our 
options open and our minds open to different possibilities because who knows maybe the best closure is yet to be invented and let's not miss it when it comes <laughs> absolutely mm. um and i guess you know the, probably one of the wines on one of the few wines you're never going to find a screw cap on is uh, a sparkling wine champagne um, yes, that's right. And, and yeah, so to answer them? your question, I, I, I skipped your question there. So, no, um, no, I, I, I first visit—that's fine. I first visited Champagne in two thousand one in the the depth of the coldest winter in fifty years, and it was snowing. And I went down into the cellars, and it was evocative and the history of these nineteen hundred year old caves under runs um, was just captivating. And I've loved Champagne ever since, but it was only when I went back in 2010 on a family holiday in summer and tasted a whole heap of Champagnes and wrote a lot of reviews and came back to Australia and thought there's really nothing in the English-speaking language at the moment in terms of a book that actually tries to get under the surface of what Champagne's doing in a way that's up to date and gives a bit of a buyer's guide to current cuvées. So I thought, well, maybe there's something in that. I'd done something similar for Burgundy a few years earlier, and it was a lovely little book, and it was one-off, and um, that that was fine, and nothing more happened of it. So I thought, well, maybe the same could be true for Champagne, and I'll just do a little one-off, and that would be it. So called in as many samples as I could in Australia, produced a 100-page book, called it um, The Champagne Guide creatively, <laughs> and thought, well, there's no point in ever publishing a book again. It costs a fortune to publish it in print. So ebooks of the future i'll release it as an ebook um see how we go so that was november 2010 and within two weeks everyone was saying we want this book as a christmas print so i called my printer in adelaide and said hey i need 300 copies that's it um so we had those for christmas and i thought well that was a nice little experiment a nice sort of foray into champagne that'll be it but then the next year when the louis Roder international wine awards came up i thought well what have i got that's current oh, i'll flick them a copy of this champagne guide thing as an ebook can't hurt and lo and behold um they awarded me international champagne writer of the year for this little effort um so i thought oh my goodness maybe there's something in this maybe i should actually take this a bit further then and spend a decent amount of research time in champagne and, and do another edition of this book which is much much bigger and the guide is specifically for champagne it's not it's not for sparkling wines from anywhere else it's just champagne exclusively champagne um, and okay. deliberately so and so i produced the next edition which was much bigger and um, it's now four editions in and i'm currently writing the fifth Unbeknown to me, when I produced that first book, Tom Stevenson and Michael Edwards, the key voices on champagne in English speaking language out of the UK, were in the process of effectively um, retiring. And there were really no strong voices to replace them. Richard Gillan's done some things, Essie Avalon, but um, their books tend to be republished every five or 10 years. So I thought by doing something that's current and up to date, uh, there may be opportunity for a niche there. And it's turned into a great opportunity for a young upstart from Australia to actually get some serious presence in the UK and the US um, and increasingly now with things coming up for me in Geneva, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, obviously Australia and New Zealand. So that's, that's turned out to be a bit of a specialty, um, perhaps by virtue of um, the chance of embarking on it at a time when others weren't. And something that I've increasingly fallen in love with. Every time I go back to Champagne, there's something remarkable about this remarkable about this region that is on the one hand closed and guarded and really not easy to get under the surface as 
for instance, the Yarra Valley or the Barossa might be. You visit any winemaker there, they'll happily tell you their whole story and how they make their wine. But in Champagne, that's not the case. It's difficult to visit. It's difficult when you do visit to get an audience with the chef de carte. And when you get to that point, not all chef de carves are open to telling you why the wine tastes the way it does because of their fruit sourcing or their production methods. So this became a personal challenge to try to get the, the real story of these champagnes, not just the marketing pitch. And so I've loved the challenge of that. And I think my readers have appreciated the chance to be able to find out all the things about champagne that don't normally get into print. So that process has become a bit of a life obsession for the last six years. And it's ricocheted into opportunities to um, to commercialise the whole thing effectively, to put it quite bluntly, because the truth is producing television, and, and that's another topic um, with my television series, and producing books and writing for magazines, um, it costs me more to travel to Champagne every year than I ever earn back from book sales. So from that point of view, I needed a way that I could maintain my independence as a critic without launching into wine PR or wine sales because um, I need to be independent from those things. And for me, the answer was to use that opportunity to present events, public events, private events, corporate events, my Taste Champagne series where we assembled 150-odd cuvées this year from 50 different houses and ran 14 events in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. These are massive things that help the category to get some traction, help the trade and the public to find the best wines and which I can put my name to without compromising my independence because every, every house is involved. Um, and commercialise the whole thing in such a way that there's not a lot of profit but enough to make it work. I kind of feel that um, when you, um, you you know you first uh, released uh, the book about champagne, you mm. would it was I think it was very timely. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're talking post um, global financial crisis, and yes. uh, uh, you know, certainly in Australia, with mm. um, strong Australian dollar, uh, you know, imports became cheaper. There was a lot more champagne yes. coming in, and so yep. it yep. made champagne a lot more accessible. Yeah. And and that accessibility. Um, meant that people probably wanted to find out more about it. You know, there's still yes. huge brand awareness. People, mm. you know, are very attached to their brand, whether it be yep. Clico or Chandon. Chon um, yes. But I think that uh, it's also about uh, a, a different era of communication in general um, mm. where I think people expect a little bit more um, openness yes. and, yep. and inf information. So yes. what what you're doing is you're connecting, um, you know, probably in a large a large case, uh, new consumers of champagne. And, you know, mm. as far as premium, um, you know, high quality wines, um, mm. and you're connecting the champagne houses, which are not, you know, traditionally not in the habit of, um, you know, um, divulging a lot of yes. information about their processes and and and, and how they work uh, so i think that you you, you really have um, tapped into a, a, a cultural zeitgeist and it really has you know mm. a lot to do with timing um, yep. and, yep. and, and, and it is interesting that you say that um, you know you were surprised that there was really nothing like that um, up till this point mm. it's true and what you're saying is absolutely correct the popularity of champagne in Australia in the past decade has been profound to the point where in the last 12 months, Australia has recorded the fastest champagne consumption growth in the world of any of the top champagne selling countries. So 
that's incredible, particularly given that our economic situation is probably not quite as strong as it was a few years ago. And at the same time, what you're saying about this interest in information and detail and disclosure, it's fascinating. You know, there are many chefs de carbs. Olivia Krug is a good example, the head of Champagne Krug, of course. He said to me some years ago he was never going to publish disgorgement dates or base vintages or anything. And yet now you look at those Krug cuvées, not only have they got ID codes on the back that disclose all that information, but they're now being labelled with edition numbers on the front label to distinguish that information as well. So the houses themselves and the growers have, have perhaps done this better over the years, but the houses are catching on to the fact that their consumers want this information and they're now finally, not all, but many starting to disclose it in, in their various convoluted ways. So my role in collating it um, becomes a, a central point where all this information can be gathered from one publication, but also um, trying to link the, the vast complexity and diversity of what is the most complex production method of any wine on the planet. Mm. And when you do travel uh, in, in support of your guide uh, mm. overseas, uh, do you find people are quite surprised that, you know, an Australian is uh, an expert in champagne and the Australian market drinks a lot of champagne? It's a good question. Um, perhaps less surprised given that a fair bit of what I'm doing is in countries that already understand that, so UK, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. But... Um, there is there is a large amount of interest in champagne in those countries and I, I think I've been privileged to have the chance to get a little bit more traction and recently Decanter magazine in the UK has asked me to be their key champagne correspondent, which is great and perhaps surprising given that I'm so far away from London and champagne. Logis logistically, it's a bit tough. Yes, <laughs> but that's good. I've been writing a lot about champagne for them for years already, so it's nothing surprising perhaps. But, um, yeah, those things are a great privilege. and It's good for me too because it gives me a closer relationship with them, which means that I'm better in a position to promote Australian wine and, and continue, as, as I have done for a long time and will continue to do, tell the stories of um, what's really going on in Australian wine as well. Hmm. So you, how do you um, work with um, some of these publications, particularly ones overseas, uh, as mm. far as the, the, being the, I guess, the uh, Australian um, correspondent uh, as mm. far as wine? I've done that for a number of magazines, um, Wine Spectator for many years. Um, I've been writing for them, continue to write for them, not quite as much as I used to do, um, and they were more interested in news stories rather than reviews as such, but Decanter, more interested in opinion pieces as well as news. So that gives me a chance to be perhaps a little bit more of a critic and a writer rather than just a reporter. So I've never really regarded myself as a journalist. I think too much in terms of the way journalists are perceived is um, chasing sensational stories and, and, and trying to do things in such a way that perhaps hypes things up. I'd rather tell the real stories of what's going on with winemakers. So right, I, I think that comes from your a background as a, as a teacher. Yeah, you, know, well, you want right. to educate. Yeah, yep, exactly. So, um, yeah, that means that um, I've been able to do that work for Decanter and Spectator, particularly internationally. Um, I, I have had invitations and opportunities with other great wine magazines around the world, but... Um, Sadly, the, the lack of time and the lack of return on, on writing income is such that I'll, I'll maintain a few 
key writing opportunities globally and obviously write for most of the Australian wine magazine still. Um, and then focus increasingly on opportunities to interact with the public, which keeps me keeps my feet on the ground as a critic and um, means I'm not spending all my time talking to winemakers, editors and sommeliers, but um, constantly engaging. And, and this week with four or five events in three states, um, getting on the ground and just presenting wines to the end consumers who love them and hearing what they like and hearing what they're buying and really getting a feel for what the wine market's like in Perth this week, Sydney, um, last night, um, Brisbane as well. Um, and then I'm off to Launceston, Margaret River, Adelaide, Melbourne over the coming weeks. And that, I, I, I just love the opportunity to tell the stories of wine and to interact with people who enjoy it as well. So it's um, it's a different, it's a very different world to sitting down at my computer and writing articles and books, but one that I equally love. How has that fed into um, the work you've been doing with James Halliday and the um, mm. Australian Wine Companion uh, as the, um, you know, official um, cham- uh, sorry, no, champagne sparkling wine taster? Yes. <laughs> yeah, James um, graciously and kindly invited me on board oh, about five years ago now, um, acknowledging the fact that there's more wine in Australia than he can taste himself um, and he'd like to get to the point where there's some um, succession planning opportunity with that guide. And so Ben Edwards was working with him for some time and then he invited me on board and, and Campbell Matson since and, and some others in more recent years too. Um, the logistical complexities of tasting wines in Queensland while he was doing it in Victoria and people sending wines in both directions and both of us reviewing them and trying to put them in the same database it just became a mess. So um, we eventually agreed that it made sense to have a line in the sand that made it easy for me to identify the wines to taste and him likewise. And because I was doing so much with champagne, he said, well, why don't you look after all the sparkling? So it's been great to just sit down with five or 600 Australian sparklings, everything from Prosecco and Moscato, obviously method traditional from cool climates, but also sparkling Shiraz, and to just see the whole category and really get my head around what's going on there and write those reviews for James and then off the back of that write my own sparkling report, um, which just skims off the, the best of the wines that I'm tasting and gives a lot more detailed analysis around the whole category than what's possible to publish in James' book with spaces at a premium. Mm. What have been some of the really exciting developments you've seen in the last few years with Australian sparkling wine? This year in particular, a few remarkable things happened, perhaps the most dramatic of which was that Australian sparkling wine has never won the top trophy at a national or capital city wine show. And then last year at the national show, um, Arras Belong to Belong 2006 won not only top sparkling of show, but it beat every white wine, every red wine, every fortified to win top wine of show. Not a one-off because then at the Brisbane show, the, the Arras Grand Vintage did exactly the same thing earlier this year. And then to back it up, I chaired the panel of the Sydney show and Arras Grand Vintage 2007, same wine that won Brisbane. When we tasted that flight, every single judge and every associate gave that wine their top god, 19 points off the bat without any discussion. I've never, ever seen that at a wine show before. And that wine then then went forward and got the blessing of every other judge to win top wine of the whole show. So three times in the space of a year, Australian sparkling has for the very first time topped three of the top shows. So to me, there's something of a coming of age in that of um, not just Arras, um, of course Arras, because that was the wine that did it, and 
credit to Ed Carr, the winemaker, for that, but also a commentary on what Tasmania is doing. It's all Tasmanian fruit, of course, and what Australia is doing as a whole in the sparkling category. That's no longer all about champagne at the top end, but Australian sparkling can be regarded alongside the great red white and fortified wines of this country as being absolutely world class. And I find that um, a, a real privilege to be part of the era in which that's been acknowledged formally and officially for the first time. And the close relationships that you've developed with uh, producers around Australia, has that kind of um, influenced you as far as the work you've been doing with um, the the television or the, the, the video content mm. you've been developing? Yes. Yeah, it's been a real privilege to work with a team of producers here in Brisbane. We've teamed up to form a company called People of the Vines and produce um, now two seasons, um, six episodes each, which have aired nationally on Channel 10 and globally around the world on airlines and, and something like 50 different networks around the world. Trying to get under the surface of what winemaking is all about and actually tell the stories of the people. So we're not a, a, a cellar door program that, that goes into cellar doors and, and films a tourism perspective. We're not a program that's all about sitting down, tasting wine and giving a tasting note. We bring a camera crew to a winery in the morning and stay all day during vintage to the height of the most stressful time of the year and film what goes on. Just if it's a good day, it's a good day. If it's a bad day, it's a bad day. We get the interactions. We get the stories of the people, the families, the wives, how the, you know, vintage widows cope with the winemakers being out for weeks on end during vintage, how the kids cope with that. And um, we film them on the weekends, taking their kids to the soccer and taking their kids to the local fair and the local markets. And we just try to really get the personality of the people and the places and the wines and to me, that's the most captivating thing about wine. And people love stories of other people. A lot of our viewers have said, oh, my goodness, I never realised that the wine world was like that and making wine um, and the personalities and the people. And I just fall in love with them. And I, they say, I want to taste the wine because I love the people. And to me, that's perhaps the most strong endorsement of all. Mm. So um, is, uh, are those seasons both viewable online anywhere? Um, good question. Technically, no. We do have a DVD series of the first um, season. The second season, it might be, they, they kind of have, have eras. So they were on 10 Play for a time. They were on YouTube for a time. But our licensing is such that um, we don't leave them up there forever because it means that different networks can, can then show them at different times. And they do do reruns. I've heard Channel 10 did a rerun again recently of, of season two in the Barossa. Um, so the answer is I'm not sure right now if, if they're online. I don't think they are. It would be interesting to um, to, to find out if you could uh, actually put it on, you know, one or more of the streaming services yes. like Stan or Netflix. Yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's look into that. I'll talk to the producers. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, Tyson, uh, it has been really fascinating um, finding out more about your background yeah, um, thank you. and, and, and getting some of your experience. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's lots and lots of um, really awesome things uh, in the pipeline for you. Uh, and so I'd, I'd love for the listeners of the podcast to to follow you and, and get in touch with you. What are um, some of the, uh, the website addresses and, and um, social media accounts that people should be mm. checking out? For sure. I am Tyson Stelzer on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. 
and my best website where I keep things most up to date. I have about a dozen websites for different projects, but tysonstelzer.com is the link between them all. And I should also mention too, the other thing that's um, been quite important for me in another website, teenrescuefoundation.org.au. I set up a foundation a couple of years ago, which has since raised about $80,000 through Wine Initiatives to fund the great activities that are going on in Australia around supporting teen alcohol abuse. The teens that get on the ground during schoolies week, that go to university O-week parties, that go to the music festivals and the sports events, and they pick up the pieces of young kids who have abused themselves. They, they offer um, security hotlines, they escort girls back from parties when they're alone late at night on the Gold Coast. Um, and they're making a real difference in teen alcohol abuse. And in fact, for the first time, we've seen a cultural change in the last five years where teen alcohol abuse is actually on the decline. So it's been a real privilege for me to be able to, to rally some support for those initiatives and something that I'd like to continue to do in an ongoing way to um, give something back to the community. And alcohol is not all about abuse and, and we can be part of the solution too. Absolutely. I think that, that's um, fantastic. And uh, I dare say you're unlikely to see, you know, Bacardi Breezer getting involved with a, a charity like that. So it's nice for, for, for wine to, mm. to show that we care about the community. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, and um, have you got any uh, other events um, that are coming up that you'd like, encourage people to, to, to check out? I do. So every year I run Taste Champagne, so that's coming up again next year in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and we're also scoping out events for Taste Champagne for the first time in Canberra, in Perth, and in Hong Kong. And outside of that, I'm doing tastings and dinners in most Australian capitals throughout the year. Um, and again, I always keep things up to date on social media and tysonsdelza.com is another good place to get those updates. And the other thing, finally, that um, is a big project for me at the moment is my champagne tours. Everybody says, oh, I'd love to go to Champagne and do what you're doing, but the houses don't let tourists visit. So I've... Um, established um, for the first time this year intimate little tour groups who come with me and get the full royal backstage treatment, never more than 10 people at a time. But that's been lots of fun, introducing people who love champagne to those sorts of opportunities that perhaps haven't been available to them in the past. Absolutely. Look, um, speaking from my, uh, from my own experience, I have had um, the very, very good fortune of visiting Champagne a couple of mm. times and seeing behind the scenes of mm. some of the, the great houses. Uh, and as you say, you know, going down into the, to the Claire underneath yes. us uh, is mm. uh, really possibly one of the most important wine experiences you can ever have. Mm. So I, really I definitely is. encourage yep. people to get in touch with Tyson about um, what sounds like a fantastic opportunity to, to see Champagne. But uh, mm. Thank you very much, Tyson. I hopefully thank we you, can um, catch up very soon. Um, but thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And um, the level of research and, and detail that you put into the questions um, is reflective of the attention that you give to the stuff you do. And I respect and admire that greatly and really grateful for your support, James. Thank you. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Um, but uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. And as always, thank you very much, guys, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and I would love for you to follow me on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at Intrepid Wino, and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter 
at the Vincast. Head to my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash intrepid Hit that like button and check out some of the links and photos that I've shared on there. Uh, I'd love for you to come visit me on my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, one word. Uh, and you can check out some of the videos that I've posted, including um, over 100 episodes of Let's Taste. Uh, and also you can find out more about my Intrepid Wino uh, winemaking project, uh, the Sangiovese from Heathkit. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean, any number of different podcast hosting app or program. Uh, subscribing means that you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and it's also a fantastic way to provide me some feedback by leaving a rating and a review. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, as would many potential listeners and potential guests. Uh, of course, all that information is available on my website at www.intrepidwino.com please do send me an email I'd love to hear from you Uh, you can find me at thevincast at gmail.com thanks of course to Tyson for joining me on this episode Uh, I hope you uh, enjoy future episodes but until next time bye bye